Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Let's have a look at the Word of God. If the guys who flash up on the screen there, Genesis 12, we're going to look at verses 1 through 9, and we're going to talk about the call of Abraham. The call of Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the Oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. That's the word of God. In the month of his 33rd birthday, my father did a pretty crazy thing. He gathered up his wife, my mom. He gathered up me and my brother. He was three and I was five. I think he was maybe four actually at the time, just turned four and I was five. And uh, he brought us to the airport, packed up our household, shipped a bunch of stuff, and you know, just a few hundred bucks in his pocket moved us to another country, the United States of America. We landed in Anchorage, Alaska, and then moved on to Beaverton, Oregon, where our family lived for a year. And the whole time, I, I was sort of, kind of freaking out. I'm like, what is going on? You know, at your age, your parents don't, at, at, at age of five, they don't ask your opinion about things. They just sort of tell you they're coming. And he did something which I think is absolutely crazy. I don't think I do it the way he did it right now. And as a result, many years later, I'm standing behind a wooden pulpit in the suburbs of Chicago preaching in English to you all. And I'm here today because of a tremendous step of faith which my parents took. And some of you are in this place listening to me because your family has a very similar story. On the eve of my 32nd birthday, God changed the direction of my life. I was headed for the mission field, and uh, I was so committed to going there. It's the only thing that was able to lure me out of my commitment to science, which I was in training for before. God had promised in my heart that I would serve him, and I believed it was in the mission field. And so when the pastor I was working with here at Harvest, who I thought was going to take the church and run with it into the future, when he was called away by God to another assignment, the leaders of the church asked me to stay on forget the mission field, and serve here as the senior pastor. You might think, 
talking to me today and my great love for this church that I was happy about that. But I was pretty depressed by that because I wanted to be somewhere else. Not because I didn't like this church, but because I was called to the mission field. I believed it was why I was put on the earth. And it was a hard thing to let go. And after some wrestling, obviously you know what I decided, because here I am. And I am so glad for the choice. But I've got to tell you that one episode in my life, in the late summer, early autumn of 1999, changed the entire direction of my life. It was a life-defining step of faith. I'm talking about that because it seems like God introduces into the life of, of a person, those who are his and even groups of his people, he introduces moments of life-defining faith. Junctures in the road where you are called to make a choice one way or the other. And however you choose, you can't have a lot of certainty about it. And what you decide will alter and define the rest of your life in some important way. Now, I would never compare myself to somebody of Abraham's uh, stature, but when Abram was called, and by the way, you should know Abram was the same guy who was later called Abraham. God just changed his name later in his life for good reason. But Abram was 75 years old when he was called by God. But what's interesting to me is he lived to the age of 175. So I did a quick algebra problem, and I, I kind of uh, figured out, if Abram was 75 but lived to 175, and if the average life expectancy in the U.S. is 78, what was his equivalent age compared to us? And do you know what it was? 33. Same year that my dad had a life-defining moment, same year pretty much that I had a life-defining moment. It seems like that's an age, or a time of life, when God is really wrestling for our hearts. A time where weird things happen, where forks in the road keep appearing, and it's like God doesn't let you rest. You just want to have the nice house and the nice cars and the nice kids and the nice dog, and you want to settle, but somehow this is a period of life where upheaval comes, where there are unsettling moments and opportunities that are presented to you, and God is calling many of you right now into some moments of great faith. Life-defining choices. And sometimes you, you're brought to that moment through anxiety and discontent. Sometimes through something as uncontrollable as the economy. God forces your hand and says, where exactly are you right now with me? It's as if God does a DTR with us every once in a while to make sure he knows where he stands with us and we know where we stand with him. And I think it's those moments in life where we're called to life-defining faith that that issue is brought to the light. Do you get that? And maybe some of you are at a juncture like that right now where you have to figure out, what am I going to do? And God will not show you everything that lies around the next bend in the road of your life. How do you deal with a time like that in your life? How do you, how do you make sense of these moments, rare moments, where God says, something's going to happen, you'll never be the same, what will you do now? And he begins to lead and speak into your life in a way where you know in your heart of hearts. You know what I'm saying? You just know that you know that you know that God is presenting something to you. And what's left to you is not to analyze or to negotiate, but to decide. Genesis 12.1 says this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I want to look at the call of Abram this morning, and I want to point out two important lessons we learn from Abram's call. 
two things which we must not miss about what happens when we reach these life-defining moments and God begins to lead and speak clearly and, and tells us something about our future. Two things that are very important. Okay? And the first is every major step begins with faith. You cannot speak of the word calling without incorporating into it this idea of faith. And I know that that sounds like a no-brainer in the church. Yeah, no, no kidding. Pastors always talk about faith. But I want to tell you, we in the American church especially have to heed this part of it. Because faith and the American way are almost mutually exclusive. We do not live in a culture that is oriented around faith and uncertainty. But we want to know the beginning and the end all at once. We are a people who need to have certainty, who analyze and we need graphs and charts. Our our most common question is, then what's going to happen? And when no one can answer us, we find it very difficult to move. We become paralyzed in the uncertainty of the moment. And so it's very important for us to know that a life of following God and following behind Jesus Christ is by definition a life of faith. You take faith out of it, we have nothing left. This is just a club for people who really like certain weird kinds of music and listening to a middle-aged, short Korean dude talk for 45 minutes a week. i got to believe we're bound together by more than that. You remove faith and you suck away the essence of what it means to be a follower of Christ. In fact, I think you suck away the essence of what it means even to be spiritual or religious. And so we see here... What a journey it is of faith. And for Abram's call, look at how it begins. It is defined first off by what he is leaving behind. God says to him, I want you to first start by leaving. Go from your country and your kindred. That's the word that's more often used in the South, but it just means extended family, your your kinfolk, right? And your father's house, your immediate family, to the land that I will show you. And the ancient world, if your father was still living, it doesn't really matter how old you were, how many kids you had. If your father was still living, he was the patriarch of the clan. His wealth, his protection, his wisdom cast a net of protection and security over the extended clan. And so that was one of the things God was telling him to do is, hey, you have lived under this roof long enough. Now, don't Americanize this and talk about as soon as you turn 18, you pay rent to your folks' house or get out and... It's not about that so much as God is saying to him, Abram, till this point in your life, there is a certain environment which has given you your full sense of security and identity. Everything you are is wrapped up in this place and in these people. And before you can figure out what comes next for you, you've got to step away from that. That happened to me in my life when I was called away and I moved to um, Atlanta to begin my Ph.D. program down there at Emory. I didn't know a soul down in the city of Atlanta. And it was in that vulnerability and strange aloneness of being away from everyone I knew, from being in a Midwestern Chicagoan to going to the Peachtree State, to the Peachtree City, and it was just the most bizarre thing. Do you know that in Atlanta, people never honk their horns? You could, you could sell cars without horns, save a little money, and no one in the South would even know. 
These people are nuts. I'm honking all the time. They're giving me dirty looks like, how dare you honk because the car in front of you hasn't gone after the light turned green for like five minutes, you know? I mean, it's just unusual down there. And I was wrestling with all that newness. And in that vulnerability, God spoke to me and gave me my ministry calling. There's something powerful about framing our steps of faith first by what it is being called away from because that is what makes us feel safe. It is what we cling to And like it or not, most of us need stability. We crave it. And when there's upheaval, stress follows, and even medical ailments sometimes follow the introduction of vast change in our lives. You know, what are you possibly being called from? You know what I think is a great illustration for faith is diving. And, you know, we talk about that, don't we? We say things like, I took a leap of faith. You know why such an apt illustration for faith Because once you leave the solid security of the platform, you cannot undo a jump in midair, right? Unless you're in the movies or you're a cartoon character. Once you're off, the rest is a certainty. It's going to happen. You can't go, oh, man, maybe I should have rethought that. It's done. And I think that moment of decision is so important to what faith is. I could probably divide this room right now into two groups of people based on how you enter a swimming pool. Some of you do everything gradually. You're the, and you dip your toe, and then, oh, it's a little numb now. And you, it takes you an hour to get in a swimming pool. Others jump right in. But even those jumpers, there's two kinds. The kind that build up that, their, their guts, and they wait and contemplate, and then they jump in. Or those who don't even think about anything. They just, ah, and they just dive right in. You know that moment, and I'm one of those, I hate jumping into that cold pool. I don't find it particularly bracing. I think it's kind of violent. But I don't like incrementally being tortured either. So I jump in. And I'm one of those dummies who doesn't think about it. I just jump in. And when I'm in midair for that split second, I always have this thought, oh, crud. It's about to get really unpleasant for me. That thought lasts for about a second, but I can't change my mind. And that's the nature of faith. Right? That's the nature of When God called Abram, what did he say? I'm asking you to leave the certainty of this place, which is home for you, to strike out and go to somewhere that I'm not even going to tell you. In in modern governmental language, it would be to an undisclosed location, like they hide the vice president whenever something's going on, right? He is in an undisclosed location. I actually did a little snooping around, and I found a satellite photo of the undisclosed location where the vice president often gets taken. So it's not that undisclosed, okay? (laughs) But here it is, okay? God is saying, this is what you know for sure. I'm calling you out to what you can't know for sure. And I'm asking, how is God a good salesman? What kind of proposal is that? Here's everything that's safe. Forget it. And follow me to, uh, I'll tell you later. I'm not going to tell you now. Now, God's not a salesman, though. That's the thing. He's the creator of the universe. He's the one who breathed life into you and me. He's the one who made it all, who controls it all. He is Lord of lords and King of kings. He doesn't have to sell things to us. I find it amazing that God is so patient and takes the time to explain things to us, to get our hearts ready. But the truth is, he doesn't have to do that. He's not obligated to you and me. He wouldn't be God if he had a contractual obligation to explain himself in everything he did. Then he'd just be my buddy wouldn't be deity at all. 
And yet I see that God continues to nurture our hearts. And at times of great fear and uncertainty, he gives us a place of comfort. You know, he says, I will show you. And what he's saying is you're not being called away to another place. You're being called to me. This is the key to how we make a decision of faith. Is that we take our eyes off of the place or situation we're walking away from and fix our eyes on the one who's calling us away. Not the place he's calling us to, but the one who is calling us. That is the real calling. Every calling in the Christian's life is about being called to someone, not to some place or to something. This is a very important truth that we have to embrace Most of our questions as American Christians are about logistics. They're about where, when, who, what, why, how. But the truth is, God is being called, he's calling us to himself before he calls us to anything else. And if you can't understand that, then there will be a terrifying journey filled with uncertainty, followed by second guessing and great doubt and anxiety. That's what many, many people experience in life because they don't realize the first calling to him. Sometimes the greatest hindrance to where you're supposed to go is where you are. It is so safe, so understood, so familiar, that it's hard for us to take our eyes off of it. And the only thing strong enough to get your eyes off of the safety of home is to see that God intends to be your new home. If all it was in life was switching from one address to another, that's not particularly useful or beneficial to you. I know one young man who is now on his 10th employer since he graduated from university nine years ago. His brother doesn't like to sit still. There are some of us who are like that. We keep changing addresses. We keep moving our circumstances. We keep changing the things about our lives. But we're not really sure what it is that ultimately gets us moving on from a place. And if boredom is the only thing that has ever moved you, or if ambition for material gain is the only thing that has ever moved you, you will be a nomad without a home for the rest of your life. And that doesn't work for us as human beings. The human heart demands shelter and a sense of home. But if for you, home is nothing more than a building where your family will temporarily set up shop for a year or two, that isn't the home our hearts yearn for. Home is a place where we feel genuinely secure, no matter what other change comes down the road. And that's why for those who are in Christ, the only true home is found in God, not in a place or situation. And this is the place that Abram came to when he left behind everything he cherished to strike out into the unknown future, is that he saw God, he recognized him and said, if you will go with me, I'll go anywhere with you. This is what our hearts have been longing for ever since we were children. It's someone who makes us feel safe, who's got it under control. If you've ever traveled to a foreign country that's dangerous, your best friend on the earth is your guide, your national host. I've been to some places that are a little bit nuts, a little bit hectic. And it's the kind of place where you feel like there's guys walking around with with rifles everywhere, no one bats an eye, and you're like, you know, is this okay? And then there's some menacing-looking fellows, maybe 30 or 40 in front of a store. They're looking at you the whole way down the street, and you're feeling like, I'm really glad you're here, because if you weren't here, I wouldn't know if this was a safe place to walk or not. It's amazing when we're uncertain about things, how important it is to have someone with you who walks ahead of you, knows the terrain, and makes you feel safe. Your heart and my heart have 
always been longing for that. You know, listen to what one commentator said about Abram's journey. In ancient times, Ur, which was really the land that he was originally in and left, was a port city. By the way, it was in Mesopotamia, the, the fertile crescent, the heartland of civilization. It was a port city that flourished on trade, moving back and forth along the coastal waterways. The land itself was luxuriant. It was watered by two great rivers, and its rich soil produced corn and date palms. There were apples, grapes, pomegranates, and tamarisks growing wild, and it was no small thing to leave a country like that and set off across the Arabian desert to an unknown and presumably less desirable land. I don't know about you, but if you've ever been on a short-term mission trip to the third world, that's pretty much the way you feel the first time you walk into an open market or a third world outhouse, and you ask yourself, why did I leave my, my clean porcelain toilet bowl with working flushing mechanisms and all that to squat over this putrid hole in a wooden house? What am I doing here? I'm afraid to touch anything. I'm afraid to drink anything. Half these guys look like they want to kill me. What am I doing here? How do you, how do you explain that kind of action? You can't if you look at the circumstances, but you can if you look at the one whose voice calls you. Every Christian journey begins with a step of faith, doesn't it? Think about that time when God was calling you to enter his family. He's saying, forget your other way of living. Come, let me save you. Let me become your master, your Lord, your savior, your friend. Let me become the dominant figure Put your burdens and your guilt on me. I'll take it. And when he was saying that to you, there was probably, if you're like me, a very, very mixed set of feelings. I want to, and I'm terrified about this because I want to get all the benefits of that. It seems like everything I've longed for, but at the same time, I've got to hand over the steering wheel to someone else. I've got to hand over the reins of control. How do you do something like that? It's not that simple or easy a thing. And every one of us who now follows Jesus, it began with a tremendous step of faith. You didn't work your way into being a Christ follower. God took you over that speed bump, that huge hump, that obstacle called faith. I didn't know what it was going to be like. I thought maybe it'll be boring. I'll get really religious, but at least I'll be saved. But at some point, he gave you the faith to overcome. And now looking backwards, I can't imagine a different life than the one I have now. It has become an exceedingly good life, but I had no guarantees about this. Every journey in Christ begins with faith into something that is not knowable at that point in your life. You have to stop thinking about what you're being called from and focus on who you are being called to. If you think about it this way, faith ultimately is an active response to a promise, isn't it? There's an implied promise in every faith transaction. You believe someone is going to be true to their word, and so you now act on it. In other words, faith is belief or trust put into deeds. Do you get that? That's a good way to define faith. Faith is saying that here's what I believe, now I'm going to do something behind it to leave myself no choice. Do you realize you exercise faith in just about every day of your life? Uh, let me give you some mundane examples of where you exercise faith. You make an appointment with someone, and then you go to the appointed place at the appointed time on the appointed day with this implicit faith that that person will meet you when they promise to meet you. Once in a rare while, you get stood up or a person's late. And, you know, if you have a friend who's always late, you're probably not in a big rush to get there on time, right? 
And after a while, you start calibrating against each other, and, <laughs> and you meet an hour later than whenever you promised. But the point is, there's two copies and one guy, right? And, and the idea is, you're waiting in faith because you believe that person will show up. Here's another one. The weatherman tells you, or the weather person tells you, we're going to have rain today, and you pack an umbrella if you're smart. And you're very happy to pull it out when it starts to rain. Do you realize you work every two weeks for this employer for the promise that at the end of it, they'll give you a piece of paper with a number on it, and if you take that piece of paper to another building, they will credit your account with buying power. Do you realize how strange that is to people in the third world or into a, to a non-financial um, economy? Into the ancient world, it would have been crazy. No, no, I work for you. My sweat and my blood was poured out here today. I want gold. And you know, in the movies, they, they bite the coin to make sure it's not fake, right? I want certainty. Do you know what we work for in America as hard as we work? For a piece of paper that represents a promise. And there are times in bad economies where that promise doesn't get kept. And people bring their check and they go, well, you know, your company just went bankrupt. I don't know if you know that. Tough luck, there's the unemployment office. The reason we keep working is because most of the time, 99% of the time, that promise does get kept. And so we continue to act in faith. I was thinking about asking the Board of Harvest to pay me in gold coins rather than a paycheck, but I don't think they're going to be very receptive. Here's the last example in everyday life. You get on a plane. I mean, I get on planes lots. Okay? Many of you also make your living getting on planes. Do you realize every time you do it, stories like the one just now out of Buffalo give you a little bit of pause, don't they? Ice on the wings and whatnot. But I've flown close to 400,000 miles in my life, and that's a lot of faith I've put into an army of people who are flying the planes, controlling the radars, doing air traffic control, doing mechanic and maintenance and loading the right weight balance, and all those things. I'm not even thinking about it. I sit down on a chair and begin to read a book, and that to me is faith. It's faith that in this implicit promise that you pay us, we will get you there alive, that promise is going to be fulfilled. Listen, God takes faith seriously. It matters to him. Look what he says in Hebrews 11:6. And without faith, it is, listen to this, it is impossible to please God. It is impossible to please God without faith. Why does faith matter so much to God? Because if faith is an active response to a promise, it's a personal or relational thing. It's not just like I have faith because I have a huge capacity for optimism. That's not where my faith comes from. I can be cynical with the best of them. Faith is ultimately not a function of my character, but it is a function of the person I'm trusting. That's why I no longer fly United. I fly exclusively American. I'm sorry if you, fly, if you work for United, do your job better. It's a cruddy airline now. I just, I'm sorry, but I get so frustrated with them. I gave them hours and hours of my life, and they've done nothing but disappoint me. Their on-time rate is abysmal. Their customer service from the gate all the way into the, the seats and the flight attendants, it was slipping. They don't even give me a power port for my laptop. It's inexcusable. So I stopped, right? Because they broke my faith. Ultimately, faith rests more on the object of the faith than on some religious capacity to trust others that you have inside yourself. That's why faith matters. When you say, I don't have faith, it's not because you're not strong enough spiritually. It's because you have yet to behold the one who warrants and justifies the greatest leaps of faith. You have not known him properly, and that's why it grieves his heart. It is impossible to please God if you don't know God, and if you don't have faith, I'm sorry, but you just 
don't know God. You don't. Because if you knew him, you would have faith. You know, you look at a guy like Bruce Lee. Come on. He doesn't look dangerous, does he? He looks like the busboy at a Chinese restaurant. And he's not a threatening character. But if you watch his movies and then you walk him down a dark alley, you feel very good about having Bruce Lee by your side. Who would you rather have with you, Hulk Hogan or Bruce Lee? Hands down, I'll take Bruce Lee. The scrawny little Chinese dude, because he's deadly. Like a Wattop, right? Do you understand that to know someone is ultimately what produces faith in them? It's not about you going, why don't I have faith? It's why can't I see who calls me into faith? That's why God takes it very personally. That's why it is impossible to enter into a deeper relationship with God if your life is filled with worry and you don't really trust the one who calls you out. And look at this promise God makes. I mean, when I look at this, it's almost offensively absurd, given the circumstances of Abram's life. I will make of you a great nation. Let me translate to English, American English. I'm going to give you tons of descendants. You're going to have lots of babies. Okay? A great nation is not just a tremendous nation, but a large nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. In other words, everyone will know your name because you've got a hand in so many lives. And then I will bless, look at this, all the families of the, of the earth I will bless through you. The scope of that promise is ridiculous considering that he's a relatively local celebrity, a rich businessman, yes, but he's 75 childless, married to a barren woman. And think about this. The more the story of Abram unfolds, truly, the more absurd the promise becomes, right? And and so how do you make sense of something like that? How do you make sense of it? Well, at at the end of the day, if Abram looked at his life, heard the promise, there's no way he would have left. Had to take God's word for it because something in that encounter he had with God produced in him a certainty that this voice, this God who calls to him, is actually able to make good on this promise. You see, God is so great that those who behold him can believe the absurd coming from his mouth. They can believe the absurd coming from his mouth. And the Lord brought, listen to this, okay? There was a day when Abram had a terrible fit of doubt. He was sleeping restlessly in his tent. He got up and he began questioning the Lord. How is this all going to happen? I'm getting older. I don't have a kid yet. The one kid I did have, Ishmael, you're like, that's not the one wrong answer. When is this great nation going to come from my loins? Lord, I'm like in my 90s now. It's been 20 years. When will it start? And listen to what the Lord says. Then the Lord brought Abram outside beneath the night sky and told him, look up into the heavens and count the stars if you can. Your descendants will be like that. Too many to count. And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord declared him righteous because of his faith. Each time we waver in doubt, God doesn't give us a little more promise or a taste of what is coming. He gives us a taste of himself again. He goes, listen, Abram, Look at those stars, and I'm telling you right now, then right after you look at the stars, look at me. I promise you this is going to happen. 
And at the end of the day, with no further empirical evidence, no, no, no data to speak of, Abram says, okay, Lord, if you say it, I'm good with that. And on he goes. That's an amazing thing. And I want to tell you right now, if you're at a junction in your life where faith is required, that that is the foundation of every journey with God and Jesus Christ. Let me give you one other word that I think comes out of all this. And it's pilgrimage. The journey of faith begins without all the answers up front. If we could know everything that's going to happen, well, we wouldn't even be... We'd be better than NASA. Think about this. NASA sends up rocket ships into orbit, and if you saw how many years they spend planning for every contingency, you think nothing could ever go wrong. But you've heard the words, Houston, we have a problem. That's not supposed to happen when you prepare like that. When you use physics and graphs and charts and supercomputers, and you calculate everything to the umpteenth degree, you're not supposed to get any bad surprises but such is life. The best laid plans of men and mice, right? You think you have secured every possible contingency. You think you have done planning that would make even the best planners in NASA blush with envy. And yet I tell you, life is such that for all your well-laid plans, faith will always be necessary because life will always be uncertain. You cannot know everything from the first step. And anybody who claims to know so, well, I don't know what's in their drinking water, but I've never known anybody who can make that claim with integrity. Life will not permit that level of certainty. God will not permit it, because as soon as certainty comes, we push him to the periphery of our lives. It is in that uncertainty that our hearts and our minds are drawn to God, because we need data now. We need leadership and guidance. Listen to what it says about Abram. Now that he takes his first leap of faith, look at what's involved. Let me read it for you. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. Now that he took a step of faith, if... if Abram was a single guy in his 20s, no problem. Just pack a suitcase or a backpack, put your laptop, your camera, a little bit of granola bars or something, and you're good to go. I remember when I was in my 20s and singles, I thought you could airdrop me into any city on earth, and I'd survive and even come back five years later a rich merchant. And I really thought that. You know that arrogance of youth? You're like, dude, I'm so adaptable. I'm so quick on my toes. Bring me anywhere. I'll make it. But when Abram left on this little journey of faith, he didn't go alone. He took his wife, and he took his nephew, and all, and and this little, this kind of statement made in passing. Oh, and they took all their possessions and all the people they had gathered. Let me give you a little bit of a context of this entourage that left with him. We learn later on in Genesis that there property was so numerous, their herds and their gold and their wealth was so great that eventually, soon after their departure, Abram and Lot couldn't even coexist in the same land together. Their sheep were starting to graze on each other's land, and they, they after a while, overcrowded that, that territory. Their wealth was so great that their herds were like a swarm in the land. On top of all of that, we learn later on that Abram not only had a few servants, he had a fighting force, a private army 
of 318 trained men. Now we're, we're talking about moving our church congregation of maybe 220 people to another site, and the amount of anxiety and logistical preparation that's required is staggering. You try to move 318 established men and their wives and children and their households, all oh, their goats and donkeys and their tents, and you say, we have a place now that we live. Here's a bargain for you. Let's pack up and live out of our suitcases for an indefinite period of time. How attractive a bargain is that? But that's what he's challenged them to do, and that's exactly what happened. And so off they go, this huge gathering of people now wandering as nomads all through the desert. And do you realize the amazing thing is, even though it begins with the journey of faith, you should understand a step of faith does not stand opposed to planning and coordination. Not as a church, not in your individual life, Don't go and say things like, well, I'm out of a job. I'm having faith that God wants me to do this. I'll just wait until some employer calls me. You've got to get your resume shored up. You've got to get the word out there. You're going to have to write a few cover letters. You've got to do some things. There is a responsive obedience, but the real issue is not whether we plan or don't plan. The real issue is what leads what. We need to establish as followers of Jesus Christ that faith always precedes planning. Always. Faith always precedes planning. If you have not heard the leading of God, all of your well-laid plans are going to lock you into a course of action that makes sense only to you and not necessarily to God. I believe that there's lots of coordination and lots of planning involved in every great movement of God, but we follow God, not the other way around. We don't say, God, this makes a whole lot of sense to us. Can you bless it? Can you come along with us? Can you anoint what we've decided to do? We say, God, where are you pointing us? And if he says, across the ocean, then what do you got to do? Build a boat, for crying out loud. When God points you somewhere, the path of obedience becomes clear, and you need everyone on board to give their best in planning and coordination and obedience. That is absolutely essential. But which leads which is the core question. Have you lived by your wits? Have you read the markets? Have you done this the way some presidents run their administrations? You know, life decision by the winds blowing here or there. If that's the way you decide things, then you will, you will find yourself eventually in the paralysis of analysis. As they say. You know what I mean? Because so many things start to make sense to you that you don't know what's the right thing. If you have not learned at this stage of your life to hear the voice of your God, You've missed the point of the Christian journey. It is a pilgrimage. It's a pilgrimage. It's a journey of staying in step with God, learning to discern his voice so that he leads, and then I get there through obedient planning. You ever let planning precede faith, you take your life and your church in a very, very wrong direction. In your life, is there a place for you to be able to say with confidence, Thus saith the Lord. And frankly, sorry, Pastor Tim, I say that to be honest with you, that sometimes doesn't make any worldly sense at all. I'm not going to read this whole thing, but what you'll notice in the last four verses of this text is that when they finally get to Canaan, here's what I'm expecting. That God would tell him, plant yourself right here, put, you know, yes, yeah, in the Old Testament they do a lot of this. Put a stone down in this place. And 
And so I'm figuring he's going to do that, and then they will begin to build a great city. I thought, wouldn't that be poetic if the people in Babel were trying to build their own great city for their name, but instead God has Abraham build a great city for his name? And that would have been a really nice little piece of closure for me. But instead, here's what happens. They get to the boundaries of the land of Canaan, the place of promise, and then God does a very strange thing. He leads Abram all over the place. He crisscrosses the land of Canaan at least three times, and he never settles. The fact of the matter is that never does he plant a place, never does he build a city. He wanders to the end of his life, walking all over Canaan, following the Lord. Just when he begins to settle one place, God leads him to another place. And I wonder, what is that all about? How do you get to the place you promised to get to and there's still no stability? There's no arriving. That really bothers me as an American. Something deep within me grieves over the way that story ends. I'm like, that's not right. That's like a bait and switch guy. You can't do that to people. You can't tell him to leave everything that was home to make him effectively a homeless wanderer. There's nothing to that. That makes me not want to follow God. But you know what's amazing? is that Abram never complained. Because what he discovers on the journey is that this life with God is a pilgrimage where the true reward is God himself, not this place you land. Here's another way of putting it. And I'm going I'm to define words rather technically. There's a difference, I think, between the traveler and the pilgrim. You sense it right away. A traveler, like a business traveler that American and United are marketing to, These are people who have a mission and a place to go. They want to get there on time, and they want to get there quietly, God, you know, doggone it. And so here's what they say. Here are the arrival times. Here are the departure times. We promise an 80% on-time arrival because we travelers obsess over arriving. We obsess over point A and point B thinking. The pilgrim, on the other hand, says, I vaguely see a point B. But for me, it's about the journey. They're the ones flipping through the airline magazine, looking out the window going, dang, I'm above the clouds right now. They're talking to the stewardess and, sorry, flight attendant. They're soaking the whole thing in. They're journaling about what the air smells like in the flight cabin and what they listen to on the stereo. Do you get the difference? There's a kind of person who's so obsessed with point A, point B thinking that that's how they frame their entire lives. So the story of Abram is deeply offensive because he never gets to point B and is done with God. He has to hang with God the whole time, and that's not fair. But the pilgrim says that's the best part of the story. Is that he never just sits there and it gets crusty again, but he stays on the move, and the new home he has is not an address, but a companion of God, who will always be with him and go with him. So that now home is not where I am, Home is where God is. You know what I think? I think that we prefer traveling to pilgrimage. Because in pilgrimage, the uncertainty drives us crazy. It just drives us crazy. We like to know when we finish something. We like to know, you know, like I have a GPS in my car, and don't you love that moment when it says, you have arrived. And I like to think of it metaphorically like, yeah, baby, I have. You know, like, I made it in life. But I love that conclusiveness. It's so American. 
You have arrived. But you know the truth is, in this earthly life, this pilgrimage of following God, that's not really a good statement. You have arrived. Because there's something deep in human nature that the minute we arrive, we start unpacking our suitcases, and we shed the, the guide who brought us there. I mentioned to you that sometimes I travel to the third world and there's a guide, but as soon as he gets me safely from the marketplace to my hotel, I don't want him to come into my room. I'm like, dude, thanks, man. You got me here in one piece. Get lost. I need my space again. I want to retreat into my room, turn on the TV, soak my feet in the tub. I don't want you all pressing in on me because you served your function. Get out. Is that who God is to us? Just get me there in one piece and get out. Give me myself, my space back again. Is that who God is going to be to us? It's amazing sometimes that our very prayer requests are designed to shut God out of the picture. God, give me the answer that if I have it, I won't need you anymore. Give me that provision that if I get it, I won't depend on you anymore. Our prayer requests are sometimes deeply offensive to a God who says, no, I'd rather just hang around and give it to you when you need it, as often as you need it. But you're asking me for a Costco-sized portion up front, and then please, I'll, I'll see you next month when I need a refill. Do you get that difference? Listen to this. Henry Blackaby, in his book, Experiencing God, tells this really interesting For 12 years, I pastored in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada. Really glad I don't live there. I don't think I could say that a lot. One day, a farmer said to me, Henry, come out and visit with me on my farm. His directions went something like this. Go a quarter mile past the edge of the city, and you will see a big red barn on your left. Go to the next road and turn turn to your left. Take that road for three quarters of a mile, and you'll see a tree Go right for about four miles, and then you will see a big rock, on and on and on. I rode all this town, and one day, I got there. The next time I went to the farmer's house, the farmer was with me. Since there was more than one way to get to his house, he could have taken me any way he wanted to. You see, he was my map. What did I have to do? I simply had to listen to him and obey him. Every time he said turn, I did just what he said. He took me away I had never been. I could never retrace that route on my own. The farmer was my map. He knew the way. Blackaby goes on to write this about four pages later. He says, Jesus said, I am the way. He did not say, I will show you the way. He did not say, I will give you a road map. He did not say, I will tell you which direction to head. He said, I am the way. Jesus knows the way. He is your way. You know, the traveler asks questions like this. Lord, what do you want me to do? When do you want me to do it? How shall I do it? Where shall I do it? Who do you want me to involve along the way? And please tell me what the outcome will be. The pilgrim says, Lord, I know you are leading me. Just tell me what to do one step at a time. And I I don't want to press that too far. Long-range vision casting, planning is a part of the life, but we've got to determine where our hearts are when we do that. Are we planning because we will set a path of safety for ourselves? Or are we planning because we're engaged with God in a leading and following relationship as a pilgrimage of Christian life? 
Sometimes we demand too many answers and too much certainty up front. We even say to God, we won't budge until the answers satisfy us. But let me just say it this way. Maybe this would be the best way to grab your attention. I don't think the bride of Christ should ask God for a prenup. Do you get that? I mean, we live in a culture that doesn't deal well with uncertainty at all. Do you realize we love watching movie trailers, even though most of them show us the whole movie, the best parts up front? We just like to know what we're getting into before we get into it. That's a strange thing about us Americans. So whenever God talks about faith and the Lord told us, we get a little skeptical, a little leery. The discomfort rises in us because that means we're going to have to depend on someone along the way. We'd rather get it first. At a church, as a church, I'm wrapping up here. Church, we're at a crossroads. Big changes lie ahead of us. And like it or not, whatever you got used to as calling Harvest Community Church, a lot of things won't change, but some things are going to change. We believe the Lord is in it. We believe with all our hearts that God is guiding us. He's spoken, and ironically, He's done it at a time when it makes no common sense to create waves. This is a time in our nation when everybody's battening down the hatches, shuttering their windows, trying to be as safe as possible. And this strange and and unusual God of ours calls us forward to faith. Maybe you're at a personal crossroads. I would wager that the coming economic storm is going to do a real number on some of our families. It already has. It's given you the um, no-options invitation to rethink your whole life's direction, hasn't it? It hasn't, it may. Maybe you've been flirting around the edges of a major career change or relocation of your family for years, and God is saying, this is the time that I may be challenging you. Step forward into your future. Leave your kinfolk and your land and your father's house. I won't tell you everything, but I can promise you this. The one who calls you goes ahead of you. You may not know everything now, but that doesn't matter. Just like a good GPS, you get one turn at a time, and it will come. You know, Abram was 100 years old when his first son of the promise was actually born to him. 100 years old. 25 years after the promise came, he sees the first baby of this great nation, and the dude is a hundred. After that, he doesn't have a whole bunch more things to give him hope. He wanders for the next 75 years after Isaac is born. He never once possesses the land of his promise. He's a nomad from beginning to end. And at the time of his death, the only land in Canaan which he owned was the burial plot that he and Sarah were, were, were laid to rest in. Now let me ask you something. As a Christian observer of this story, this man who boldly steps out in faith, do you realize that only 11 chapters of Genesis are devoted to the early history of humanity and the earth, but 14 chapters are devoted to Abram's life? He's important. He's huge. And yet you look at his story, there's this grotesque disappointment for us as Americans. That doesn't seem right. Why would that be the end of his story? No land, no home, 
a couple kids. Where's the great nation? Is Abram's life a big waste? Is Abram's life story a giant, divine, practical joke? You think a couple angels in a pub in heaven made a bet? And Abram's the sucker who got pulled into it like a pawn? But you know what, to be honest, that's not a bad assessment of the story. If all you look at is the boundaries of Abram's years. But listen to what the writer of Hebrews tells us about Abram. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob. Heirs with him of the same promise. Why? How? For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He had an eternal vision. He saw what God would do in the future through Jesus Christ. He saw the new city of the new Jerusalem. Heaven itself opened up to him. And he realized this story of faith, this journey, this pilgrimage I'm on, it's not only about the 175 years of my earthly sojourn. By faith in God, I've now connected to a story much greater than myself. My story now plugs into the book of the great story so that I will be part of that story of the great city whose foundation and designer is God. Do you realize that Abram was able to, to finally say, life isn't about these 175 years, but my life has such great value because it now connects to this wondrous story that is timeless and transcendent. And I'm not just being poetic here. Do you realize that of those stars that Abram looked outside and saw in the night sky one day? That one of those stars was lit for you and one of those stars was lit for me? When God took him out and said, one day your descendants will be as numerous as those stars, he had in mind you and me and not biological children. Listen to what Paul said about it in Galatians chapter 3. Consider Abram, Abraham, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. So those who have faith, and he's speaking of in Christ, are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. I believe that supernaturally God showed Adam or showed Abraham a picture even of this church. Of a movement of people following the true Savior that will be much greater than the 175 years of his life. And because Abraham was faithful, his story became another block in this amazing, great story that God is writing. We have such a demand that my earthly life should make sense in and of itself. But that's like reading one chapter of a book and saying, I don't get it. It only makes sense in the whole book. Do you realize your story may finish rather unsatisfactorily? Do you realize that some of the plans and promises you made yourself in childhood and youth may never come to pass? I promised myself as a young man when I gave away my last motorcycle that at age 40 I'd have a really nice bike. I still flirt with it every now and then, but I know every time I mention it that I'm getting further and further away from it ever happening. I'm laying it to rest. If one of you wants to give me a motorcycle, in the Lord I will take it. But truth of it is, 
That's a dream that's got to die. You know, there are a lot of things I wanted to experience in my life. One of my life dreams has been to drive a Lamborghini just once, really fast. Just once. I wanted to own a boat before I died. You know, there are so many things I want to do. And at the end of it all, I can tell you this. My life will finish on this earth with a lot of unfinished business. Sad because I'm only going to get to be on this planet once around. And I'm not going to get to scratch every itch I have that I carry around with me. But you know, that's okay. Because I understand truly that my life has a bigger meaning than what I get to experience in the hopefully 80 years that I'm on this planet. It's a great story being written. And I'm going to play one small part of it. You want to get my life? Finish the book. Same story for your life. And we need to overcome this obsession. Small thinking. Certainty. Enter with God behind the footsteps of Jesus Christ, our Savior, into a life journey of faith, a pilgrimage that will not end. Isn't that an amazing proposition? That's the story of the Christian faith. Bow with me as we pray. We're strange people, you know. We like surprise parties if they're for us. The truth is, we really don't like surprises all that much. And what gives us so much stress is that we're called to walk in this life without all the answers up front. If your struggle with God right now is one of faith, remember what I said earlier. Your job is not to dig deep and find faith somewhere in the recesses of your heart. Faith isn't some character trait you produce. Your task now is to look at God and realize that he is more than meets the eye. The one who calls you forward is bigger than every challenge you're faced. Faith comes from beholding him. And maybe... You think the next big hurdle is the last one you'll face, but I promise you it won't be. What God invites you into is a never-ending journey, and you will lay your head down for the last time, tons of unfinished business on this earth. But the important thing is that you journey with him, a pilgrimage, not a task. I'm going to leave it quiet. we ask the praise team maybe play a little soft music, but I want to give you a chance to get quiet before God and respond to him however he's leading you right now. And then we'll sing a last song and then we'll wrap up. I want to encourage you, if your life is at a crossroads or if any of the changes coming forward have produced great anxiety in your heart and you need guidance and ministry, I want to encourage you to turn to your community group leader or one of the elders or staff on this church or any trusted spiritual friend. I'm going to ask you to just turn to others Pray it through and get help that you need because I believe that God may be calling some of you into an amazing journey that begins with a single leap of faith.
I want to open that up to you, and I want to make my door open as well to you. Please receive the blessing of God. May God become so great in your eyes that every fear and worry, every foreseen obstacle will melt in the face of the greatness of this God who calls you out of a life of mediocre security into a significant life of faith and daring. May this God lead you to have a life that is life and not merely existence. May he give you courageous faith to step out and follow where he leads. And as he gives you one turn after the next, may he make you and me exceedingly wise to walk in obedience and wisdom. May we all do this because in the end our blessing is Jesus Christ. And we've been called not to hoard that blessing, but to share him generously with everyone. And so may he make this a church built on faith, not on safety. May he be pleased with us and we with him. Now as you go from this place into your mission field, may he fill you with every blessing and with great strength and the blessing of his presence most of all. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit of God. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.